0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This
1: is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics. We do this every week, have been doing it on Zoom since March. We've got the whole crew here, Audie Weiner, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, and this is Cade Massey. We will do, as we typically do, a half hour on COVID-19 up top. And then roll into a couple of open quarters on the world of sports before we wrap up with the fourth and final quarter with an interview. This week, we're talking to Sam Schwartstein. Sam was intimately involved with the creation of the XFL, especially on the innovation side. Fun conversation with him about rules and tournament design as, um, as we always think about rule changes, especially in the worlds of baseball and college football recently. So, gentlemen, good afternoon to you. We're recording this on Tuesday afternoon that's the 22nd deep into the holiday season some of us are strewn across the united states in vacation places glad everybody's here together we're still of course in covid world immunizations are out there vaccines are out there but so is the infection um and and, and i'm curious as you've looked around things as you've read what has caught your eye in the world of covid
2: 19. I'll, I'll start uh, speaking of um vaccinations you know on facebook i'm seeing all my friends who are in medicine here get get vaccinated and they very much deserve to be their frontline workers and generally in the hospital but in israel they've have so much more vaccine per person than we do here they're vaccinating everybody 60 and up just that's the first group no arguments 60 and up so just to show you kind of in some sense how behind we were with the vaccine, we didn't really secure enough doses so that in the first round, 100 million people could get vaccinated. We're just doing about 20 million. Mm-hmm.
3: How, how many people are in Israel? Eight. What's the population? Well, OK, it's a different it's, magnitude of, of, of problem. Two magnitudes, almost a problem. Yeah. Yeah.
2: But but if you have to think about it proportionally, I mean, that's really that's how it affects. Well, no, no, no.
3: I mean, you know, when 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 every country is trying to order these vaccines from the companies at the same time i don't think you can think about it proportionally i mean like even if america wanted to ordered 150 200 vac- 200 million vaccines like on day one when would you know i they wouldn't get them as quickly well, yeah. as israel would uh, get well no i mean israel really, can basically would, vaccinate their population and like you know a, well no I mean, a 20th I'm, I'm a, of the time america can
2: you know no, that's that's the distribution problem i'm talking about so pfizer got all these orders. And they have to decide how they're going to allocate them. They could have, without even, there wouldn't have been an, a, a fraction of an issue for him to just say, we're going to vaccinate 20% of your population. Yeah, 60 and over is what you're getting in the first round. Everybody, that's figure out how many you need. That's what you're getting in the first round. 60 and over. You're assuming um, there would have been enough worldwide Pfizer. Yeah. Pfizer
3: could produce in the first round enough vaccine no, to Pfizer, get all, everybody no.
2: over 60. No, they couldn't necessarily, but they could have said, this is how many, how, many, how many vaccines we can do. Let's say it's 200 million doses or 100 million doses in the first round. They could have allocated it to the countries who are willing to pay for it in such a way that, that it, essentially everybody had the same threshold in that's terms sure. of, and, and that's not how it was done. That's essentially what I'm, I'm pointing out. And so that, and I think, and I'm, I'm going I'm, to, I'm about to do something I don't ordinarily do, but we screwed up. We should have ordered more doses um, relative to our size, and the fact that, of course, Pfizer is—you uh, know—we are for so many drug companies the market that they make their money in. Um, we never leveraged that; we blew it. I'm just—that's my point. Well, and I'm not, I and guess, I arguing absolutely. that we
3: didn't. How much up. of that was
1: because of the the diversification problem? It's easy to say ex post that we didn't buy the right amount from the the person, the, the company that ended up being mm-hmm. the first provider. <laughs> I, I don't know what the process was like, but I could imagine six months ago, wanting to diversify your bets and place a little bit with a lot of different manufacturers.
4: Yeah, Adi, it was even worse in the following sense. I don't know that this is true, but I think it's true. I think we also have a higher per capita infection rate than Israel. And so you could make an argument if that's true, maybe it's not true. Israel's worse than us, Okay. Well, then maybe you should argue that they, you know, you could then argue that they should get a larger proportional dosage. I mean, countries that have it worse should actually, I mean, if it depends, if the goal is reduce
2: the global number of deaths, I mean, set your objective function and maximize towards it. Well, I mean, I'll just respond to a couple of things. They have as many cases we do per capita and more, but they actually have a much more, much lower fatality rate than we do. So that has to come into it as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now they lost nice.
2: three thousand people. That's not the three hundred thousand that we've lost here year, and they are, of course, uh you know, they're not uh, one hundred. They're not one tenth the size. They are, uh, well, actually, they're much less. One twentieth size. size. Yeah, 120th yeah no, size. it's like one yeah.
3: twentieth. Of course, I mean, yeah. it's basically yeah. the Philadelphia, the Greater Philadelphia area. Yeah, about. <laughs> yep. So, I mean, yeah, that's going to be an easier operation, all told.
2: Yeah, when it comes to distributing the, bi- I mean, we have a big, but also ordering it. Across- it. ordering ordering it, So they were able to secure something like, I think it's about 3 million doses for a population Mm -hmm. of about eight. And that just seems good fortune.
1: So so (laughs) from a proportional, from an expense perspective, you'd think about proportionality. But from a a supply, getting a share of a limited supply, proportionality isn't what matters. It's the absolute number that you need, which is right. Where have you guys landed on these debates? There's so much debate right now about the priority of population for vaccines. And the CDC made their recommendations. Of course, it's up to states to implement whatever they want to do. But many people are arguing for the, we should have gone to the most vulnerable populations first. Everybody's like, frontline healthcare workers, fine. But then what happens next? And some countries are prioritizing the elderly or those, those with comorbidities. And there's been a lot of debate on this. And I'm curious where you guys end up on, audience
2: Well, so I actually thought about it in essentially three, 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 three aspects. One is, of course, the infection rate. I think that's really important. How exposed are you? Um, what is the likelihood of getting, of getting infected? The next factor is the fatality rate. So infection fatality rate. Given you're infected, what's the chance that you die? Those two things are the things that people are thinking about uh, in, in combination. I think they probably matter the most. Um, there, are, there is, of course, a third thing which is um, a third level that I think in the United States we're not considering, but I would guess that some of our uh, social democratic countries in the, in the Northern Europe probably do, because that's how they treat medicine, which is the, the amount of life lifetime you have left, which is actually how um, that's a, and also an issue that you think about when you distribute. So there's three factors that go together. I think the old age, the people in, in senior facilities have such a high uh, fatality rate and such a high infection rate that they're probably at pretty close to the top. The healthcare workers have such a high infection rate, even though they have a lower fatality rate. They're also close to the top. Yeah. After that, it gets tricky. So, well, I
1: mean, not, left- not, even, but not even after that, it gets tricky. I mean, your third parameter there is totally. Oh, know,
2: oh, yeah. We don't do that point. at all in this country. <laughs>
1: but but go, Eric,
2: go ahead.
3: So
4: Adi, you left out one factor, I think, unless it's built into your infection rate, which is your spreading rate.
3: Yeah, that was my point. Is- was That was my exact same point yeah. is, you know, those two are not necessarily equal, right? And spread rate is kind of the more important one as far as this goes. Yes,
1: yeah,
4: right, so that I was guess my the, point, guess I... is that you could, you know, that's why, matter of fact, there are some countries, I forget reading, which maybe it was India, et cetera, yeah. that's actually vaccinating the younger people first, because they're the ones that are in contact with more people. And so if you stop, if you stop the infectors, then you, you dramatically reduce the infection rate. So it seems to me that's a gamble
1: it's less certain, sure we understand
3: the yeah. well I, I don't think we necessarily yet understand very clearly it's it, it wh- who wh- what makes people spreaders or wh- where where yeah. all the spreaders kind of are i mean you know when i think of spreaders, you know I, I would i would vaccinate the delivery people and stuff like that you know pretty early on in this process because i kind of in, in my mind see them as kind of being spread you know poten- at least potential right. spreaders but i don't know if the science really backs that up
1: well i think th- there's w- one we don't have definitive science on this right now i suspect because we're still learning so much but ross doubted had an interesting piece in the new york times in the last few days where he said look these decisions are fundamentally political and i really strongly agree with that as we there's not an answer science doesn't give us an answer we talked last week about it feels like an operations research problem it really does have components that are straight or but you still need an objective function and that's not given no one's exogenously determining the, the the objective function. We have to decide as a as a political body mm-hmm. what we're trying to maximize. I, I, or
3: 50 political bodies in the case. Yeah, yeah,
2: right. I, actually, I have to say, I'm scheduled to teach January 20th in a classroom to 23 undergraduates. I woke up in a sweat this morning, yeah. <laughs> worried about it. <laughs> And I'm but thinking, I'm, can I get the vaccine?
1: <laughs> if we had a market, do I stand? Where's the market I can short that prospect right now? Uh, well, actually, yeah,
4: it's an interesting question. So I we had a department faculty meeting today, and I just asked, has anybody heard anything about whether we as professors? are lumped in with teachers and are we likely to be an accelerated group? A couple of my faculty said they had heard that we are lumped in with teachers and that we may actually, I we won't go by January 20th, but we may go in group two. We might be very soon thereafter.
1: Let me give you guys a, a, this is just an anecdote, but it's an, it's an acute one that I'm curious where it, where it falls and where it should fall. There's a, there's a child in CHOP. So the children's hospital of Philadelphia who has acute, rare form of leukemia. And he started out down here in Houston, then he tried Cincinnati and the family now is in Philadelphia and they're trying to drive um, his immune system down to nothing so that he can do a, um, a transplant. And, and that basically is going to take him to be, you know, as risky as it can be to infection. And he's got his parents as caregivers and we're floating around here in the world of COVID. Now vaccines are available. And the argument would be what role, the argument, the question is how, what priority should his parents have for the vaccine? And so you have this child. So, you know, if, if the child, if the, if the parents get the infection, the child's going to get the infection, then he will die because there's no immune system whatsoever. They're investing all of these resources into getting this kid healthy. And now they have to decide how they're going to allocate their scarce resources of vaccines. So I guess this counts as a comorbidity or a caretaker. I, I don't know where it falls exactly, but this—they're having trouble, and and it's baffling to me why I, this is a hard one. To
2: me, to me, this is the only solution for this is to allocate a very small percentage to the to the whatever board or hospital to let them just use on their discretion. I mean, these cases are so rare that you're talking about. Yeah. You won't make a dent in the policy nationally, and the and to have a, a inflexible policy because it, because that's what you come up with seems to be not a, not a good strategy. You always should have a little bit of wiggle room to let yeah. a decision maker handle these. I situations. mean,
3: empirically, or, or sorry, like practically, do we know that's not going to be the case? I oh, mean, how yeah, much no, how much no, accounting right. is going to be? I, I don't exactly. I don't know how much. I mean, you know, the states will get their vaccines and they'll kind of right. give them. I, I don't I don't know if you know, well, how much accounting there will actually be, it's you know, in, to in the United Kingdom, I have a, a, you know, a friend of mine who's a, a, a physician in the United Kingdom and there's a lot of accounting there, but it's a central body, the NHS, yeah. that's giving out, that's kind of administering everything. So in, in the United States, I think there will be probably a lot of kind of wiggle room type things. Cause it'll be done in the usual decentralized chaotic way. We do things with healthcare here.
1: Well, this is our point. I mean, there's a the discretion, and chaos kind of go together in a way, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, one one of the things I kind of like the state by state model because everyone got has a different situation and they have local information, and so you kind of like decentralized decision rights in that in those situations. I think Audi, I think, is just taking it a step further, and saying an organization like a hospital ought to build in some process that has a fair bit of discretion for case by case because they are these really unusual cases, which it seems obvious that the family should have vaccines. Um, Why do do
4: you make an assumption that I've made an assumption that that does exist now, whether it's actually formalized or whether that's happened, I've always assumed there's going to be some discretion that's done on the part of the hospital itself.
1: Yeah. It's a fair question. I I don't know. And, and obviously even within the hospital, they might decide to tie the hands. Yeah. And
3: I guess, I guess my point is even, even if they're like, you know, the kind of letter of the regulation is that there's no disc, even if somehow there was no discretion, the, the nature of this process is going to permit, essentially, discretion. Yeah. Well, or or can, You can't avoid discretion, really. Let I me think.
4: ask you another question. You've heard um, from a – you can think about it from a statistical perspective or a monetary perspective. You heard about there are individuals that are trying to pay to move up some list – on like these illicit types of lists to get either the covid vaccine earlier or for these what they call concierge type of medical places that they think are going to get the vaccine and they want to be at the top of the list, how would you think about the economic like what's the break even point that you would assign to getting the vaccine earlier like how would you even think about forget whether it's it's clearly not fair, but if you were going to pay a certain amount of money to basically Make your utility equal. How would you think about that? Because that's what economists think about all the time. Like, would it ten? Is it is it like number of months times the probability that you get it? Is it like we're statisticians? There's a difference in cumulative distribution function between five months when you're going to get the vaccine and today. So that's some probability you're going to get it. There's Mm -hmm. some loss if you get it, and you you multiply those two together, and you get some expected
2: utility or expected value. it's a very individual I a, population. How about I, but... I to make a very simple thing? If you if you're if you're up, shouldn't you have the right to sell your spot? Let's say uh, you're a one A person and you're you're in working emergency room, whatever. And let me make it make it concrete. Let's say you had COVID. They're still letting you vaccinate, mm. even though you've had it, because we're being foolish on this point, I think, to a large degree. And now and now someone comes up to you, Shane Jensen. I don't know. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's Eric. Maybe it's someone yeah. you know, and says, "Here's five grand. I want your spot." And no, like, I don't even need this thing. No, no, I, 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 I wouldn't. I,
3: I wouldn't do it for five grand. I wouldn't do it for five grand. But if it's, you know, January 14th and I can make sure that Tom Brady doesn't get COVID before he debuts <laughs> in the Super Bowl. Yeah,
2: there you go. <laughs>
3: can I personally be Tom Brady's hero on that one? No, yeah, I mean, but I mean, and I, I think I, br- I bring up football just because this is an example of something where, you know, that that's the situation, too. I mean, you know, we're about to have these football playoffs. Right. And you know, the NFL certainly would pay I, I, I think would pay a lot of, of money to vaccinate its athletes would if they the kind of would.
2: give up their spot yeah.
1: well, so there's the, the economists would say there are efficiency gains from these kinds of trades because people know whether they have a special need for it. Like I need to expose myself because something's very important yep. or if they, they might know that they're low risk. I'm going to be at home for the next month. I don't, I don't have, I'm, I'm not really a danger in those situations. You want the vaccine to go to a higher use case. Yep. And so you get that kind of re reasset- reallocation, which is an efficiency game. The One question would be like, where do the funds go? It, it's more palatable to people when the revenue generated by these systems benefit right. society in some way as opposed to people being able to profit from. It.
4: Another well you ask another a related question to that Cade would be, you know, let's imagine as a professor, one of us or someone we know uh, is eligible, but they actually say, look, it, my utility be better for my spouse or significant other to get it because right. they're actually in a higher risk category and and actually I'm being, you know, I don't I would have more utility in that. I don't think right now, I know you can't, you can't just say, well, give it to my wife instead. She'll, you know, inject her arm instead of mine. But you could imagine that's actually quite a rational thing to do.
3: Yeah, yeah well, it just unfortunately opens it up for coercion as well, right? No, I mean, so I, oh I, God. It's, it's, it's difficult, but.
1: This is, I mean, this it's endlessly fascinating. It really is. And, and unfortunately, we're kind of stumbling right through it without having these big discussions, at least not very extensively. But again, we're onto the same kind of question, which is optimal discretion. In the allocation system, because now we're talking about a very localized level, like within family unit, you should have some Mm -hmm. discretion. It's super interesting because, you know, different outcomes introduce considerations of fairness, introduce possibilities of being exploited. Super, super interesting. Unfortunately, highly relevant right now. Adi, you've been doing some original research over the last couple of weeks. I mean, you're always doing something, but- is this the excess mortality stuff? Is this going to see the light of the day anytime soon? Yeah. It, really interesting?
2: yeah, it is going to see the light of the day in some form or the other. So um, I was actually inspired to look at excess mortality. A bunch of news organizations put it out, a lot of excess mortality, The Economist, New York Times. But I actually stumbled on a local, a local uh, kind of data scientist. She goes by the moniker, the Mainline Mama. And she had put all this wonderful uh, resources up on the web. And does it did a terrific job of making a lot of basic data available. And it was really just I went down to went down to the API through the CDC and look at ex- excess mortality. What I wanted to look at in particular was the effect of, say, lockdowns on excess mortality. In other words, I expected to see that uh, states that did a very aggressive job keeping the virus in check would have much lower excess so, mortality. Adi, is that the level of data granularity you have, excess mortality I, I, at the state level? I have state level and I have by age group within the state level. And That's something that that you you can't get that for COVID, um, which is terrible. You can get COVID per state, you can get COVID by group, but you can't get the cross product of COVID by age. It does exist in in localities, but it's not aggregated at the CDC level yet. Um, There's lots of data that's still taking a long time to get put together. So what I was curious to know is to see whether or not that was really going to be transparent in the data. And lo and behold, if you look at, at the oldest um, uh, age buckets, 85 and up, 75 and up, you see a very clear ordering. I looked at the largest states because um, there was a lot of fluctuation in excess mortality, particularly the smaller states. And you see Washington right on the top with the best results followed by you know California. Surprisingly, places like Florida and Texas passed New York, even though New York had such a terrible start um, with their, you know, they, they really flattened the curve, but their area ended up being larger in the end. Um, and, and that kind of ordering kind of played out exactly as I expected it. But here's where the surprise came. When I looked at 25 to 45-year-olds, there was essentially no difference across the states. The excess mortality was all almost within a narrow band between about 27 and 33% excess mortality. And here's the kicker, only about 25% of that's COVID. And that's where it got really interesting. Where does this extra 75% of the excess mortality, which is about... 30,000 deaths or so what's it coming from so I'm actually talking That's really, it's really it's really interesting or,
3: because I would kind of imagine you know I you know when I would imagine that a lot of these excess death calculations one of the motivations was that we wanted to kind of take care of the kind of compensatory like not compensatory but like you know that that all these extra COVID deaths you know would actually kind of be removing deaths from other buckets and we wanted to kind of adjust for yep. that. And I kind of think, what does, you know, I was like, like, I would assume that 2020 is probably going to be an all time low for traffic deaths in the United States. For example. Actually,
2: it, incidentally enough, I mean, I, I got an answer to that. It isn't. And apparently the driving, much less driving, much worse driving.
3: Interesting. <laughs> they, they've exactly, oh, that's fascinating.
2: effectively balanced each other out. But the real concerns are, and this is, i talked to experts in opioid and, and essentially that, that's in the, the, the category of accidental death, which yep. is the number one Cause of death between 25 and, and 45, uh, which is accidental accidents followed by suicides, followed by homicides. Mm-hmm. And this year, oh. and then so COVID is one of the, one of the highest, certainly the, 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 one of the primary killers in that age group. But most of the excess mortality, the vast majority of that excess mortality in that age bucket is coming from external causes. At least that's what it appears to. And well, this is,
1: yeah. I mean, obviously, external causes, but obviously there's some systemic stuff going on. And so COVID drives oh, yeah. the economy into the tank and everyone stays home and oh, has yes. jobs or money or anything. All of a sudden, people are killing each other more. It's all related, which is fascinating and tragic, but let's, let's make it concrete again. You're talking, you said we're talking about an excess of about 30,000. Yeah. Deaths so um, I States? was looking,
2: I looked at uh, so the data that I have is essentially through November. Um, the, the December data is actually maybe the first week of December. It takes a, a couple of weeks before it gets accumulated, even though excess deaths is really hard to miss. It's, it, it gets, uh, deaths get reported quickly. So I'll give you the totals. It's about 155,000 deaths in that age group. Um, we typically have between 110 and 120,000 in that group. And this year we're at about 155. Um, it's hard to know what the baseline is. I averaged the previous five years, but yeah. it seems to be, um, there's quite a bit of fluctuation. Around. Right. Um, it does right. bounce around. Um, and that bounce around means that it's hard to know, pin down exactly how much excess death there is this year, because what's your reference point? That, that makes a bit of a difference. So right. I, threw it out, I threw out numbers about 30 to 35,000 excess deaths And right now we have about 8,000 of those are attributed to COVID. Um, It's hard to miss a COVID death um, or get it. There are very, very few illness deaths in the 25 through 45. I mean, this uh, quickly,
1: before we go past, you're describing this, this, uh, these numbers. And this just reminds me, because when we first talked about excess mortality, we got into this. So Mm -hmm. while it it does provide this very clean baseline, it's actually not a clean baseline because it's a historical distribution. And you're saying, there's 30,000 kind of un, unexplained over the five-year average, but there's, right. a, there's a range of outcomes over these years. And so mm-hmm. the question would be like, where, where does that fall? Like what percentile is this? I mean, how unusual is this really compared oh. to historical? Oh,
2: oh no, it's, 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 uh, it's unaccountable. I mean, it's absolutely way, way, way outside of random. It's
1: population. way outside the range.
2: Way outside. Okay. Okay. Random okay. fluctuation would be at most about 10,000.
1: Okay. Okay. But then you are saying that uh, that most of those come from homicides and suicides. Homicide,
2: suicides and accidents are the biggest group in that age. And there's really nothing else outside of it. There are some illnesses, very, very rare, some cancer. There's some glioblastomas. There's a few um heart failures in that age range: yeah, right. okay. the predominant way you go out between 25 and 45 as uh, my my colleague mike Stewart would say the choose the door you're going to take out of this um this world of ours <laughs> um is uh is accidents okay. and or externals yeah.
1: okay and but we're talking about this 25 to 40 year old range which yeah, is why we can narrow right. down the causes so well and i mean I, I think this just speaks to the elegance of this particular way of looking at the problem on this very top down. Let's look at one firm statistic desk. Let's, let's look at how let's look at how many they exceed historical. And then you you're doing something extra, which is going into the age groups. And what we're gonna learn is that the consequences to COVID nineteen are far beyond the ICU units. You know, they are the in, the ICUs. They're like Anyway, this is a great look at it, Adi. It's, it sounds like terrific. that's
3: fascinating, yeah, and I'm, I, I, it's fascinating because it's a lot of it seems very counterintuitive, like the traffic, the traffic one, for example. The traffic one is, but this
1: is going to the
2: thing is, and I've talked to some of the experts in this. The data, uh, external deaths, take a very long time before they're collected and reported because, mm-hmm. in many cases, they have to be investigated.
4: Right. Yeah, when mm-hmm. just it's a re, certainly related topic. Let's call it a cousin to the topic that you brought up, Adi, which is. Um, I've always wondered, and this is a much harder problem to answer, uh, which is, let's imagine that there were no resource constraints, meaning there were as many ICU beds, forget the vaccine, if there were as many ICU beds or as many nurses and doctors, et cetera, that we needed How many deaths would have been saved? Like how much of this is due to resource constraints? And how much of this is due to because you know, one of the things we hear all the time is, you know, things, resources weren't in the right places, maybe for at some period of time, there weren't enough ventilators, there wasn't enough mass, there wasn't enough PPE. So could you ever try to estimate a counterfactual world where there would have been enough and compute the number of excess deaths due to the lack of appropriate resources? Because that's gotta be a question people are asking going forward because it would certainly have implications for how much you produce going forward.
1: It seems like you'd need to know what the capacity was in various parts of the country at various points in time. And we're not gonna know that for PPE, I suspect, but we do know it pretty well, I think, for hospitalization and hospital usage and ICU usage. And so presumably one could match a, a time series of, of, of ICU beds and capacity to some of these excess deaths in a way that you are able to relate them, presumably, because at least we have those data. Guys, before we end this segment, I want to I uh, let you know one thing that jumped out to me. There was an article in the Times a couple of days ago on what lessons we can learn from, from Thanksgiving because, you know, as we roll, you know, out of Hanukkah and into Christmas, we've got the same problem we had a few weeks ago with Thanksgiving. People were concerned about gatherings and what they're going to do for the spread. And so, you know, with, with all the motion tracking, cell phone data we have now, we have a much better lens into whether people are social distancing or not. And they jumped in, this Times article jumped in, and it's a great, great article, but there's one data visualization in particular that just, I think it's great data viz, but also the headline here. Um, they kind of ran past the headline. So the, the, the question is how much people reduce their Thanksgiving contacts. And so they were able to say contacts over Thanksgiving day, Thanksgiving day contacts versus last year by County. Okay. And then they, they graph it by region, which we can talk about, but first to start, I'm going to ask you guys a trivia question. What percentage reduction do you think we see on average in the United States in contacts on Thanksgiving day. Now I don't know how they're measuring contacts per se, but this is usually a certain, you know, uh, proximity to each other for an extended period of time. So there's, there's various
4: ways- the Last year I con- I was in contact, however, to measure with five people this year, it's four, that's a 20% reduction. So exactly. you just want to be clear. And we're now computing what's the average amount of reduction.
1: Yes, yeah. So I'm asking you, what do you think it is across the United States? And so we can look at regional differences, but in general, let's just start there percent contact reduction on Thanksgiving day, 2020
3: versus
4: 2019. 25%. So oh, here's what I'll I say. Would, yeah. I'll say that I'll say why I think that's too high. It goes back to what I said before about a mixture distribution. I yeah. think there's a large fraction of people that will have no reduction
3: mm-hmm.
4: and then a fraction of people that will have the reduction of the size you're saying, uh, Shane. So I'm going to guess. Well, a third, no, of, that, a third of that number, because I think there's a two third spike at no reduction.
3: No, I mean, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm I also uh-huh. think it's a mixture. There's going to be people that actually reduce the amount of people they see. I, I, I feel like that 25 percent is probably not going to be realized in that many people. It's either going to be they've gone from eight to zero or they've gone from eight to eight.
2: No, uh, I, I don't know how you count this, but I mean, if you go from eight to two, I mean, uh, that's an enormous percentage drop. I'm actually going to go higher than you. I'm, I, I think people did a, a better. I mean, I think it's closer to between 30 and 40 percent overall.
1: Okay, so this, you're capturing my intuition, and they did not, this was not the headline. And I think this should have been the headline. These data show the average, I'll give you region by region. It moves a little bit. And I'm just kind of ballparking this. The average reduction in the Northeast, uh, 66%. The average hmm. reduction in the Midwest, 65. The average reduction yep. in the West, 62. The average reduction in the South, uh, 55. Okay. So the region that reduced the least, Cut their contacts by half, more than half. And mm-hmm. if you look at the full distribution, there are yep. counties out there where the reduction—big counties where the reduction was more like eighty percent reduction. Wow. And the mass is the mass guys is just sitting there between fifty and eighty. The Let's number talk, this of is counties, a
3: weighted average, as Adi said, but it's still impressive yeah. numbers. Regardless. It's still impressive. Yeah. No, I mean, obviously, much higher than I thought it was going to be.
1: I I think, uh, yeah, it's astounding to me that this isn't the big story. And and, I mean, everyone worried about it so much. And here are data, the data say, no, the United States was actually really good at reducing the number of contacts over Thanksgiving.
2: I have to say, uh, um, I was wrong about the mask thing. uh, Shane corrected me online two weeks ago, or whatever it was, outside of the cities, people are really not wearing masks aggressively. But I've even seen, but one of the things that I think that I I do feel a lot of people are trying and and you you think it's easy, but I, I see so many people with the mask half on and they really, it's it just, it, I don't think they're conscious about it. They're not trying to say, screw you or
1: they just have trouble. I mean, it's <laughs> its interesting. I was about to talk about how hard it is to model this stuff.
3: And yeah, we, does, it, talked- does it go over my mouth or does it go over my chin? I just it's so confusing <laughs> this mask technology.
1: So we've, <laughs> we've, we've, we've we've worried about models and how much trouble the models have had forecasting. And there's still a big debriefing to happen at some point about the epidemiological models. But the 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 through line through all those conversations has been it's hard to get the behavioral piece right. It's one thing to understand. I mean, it's hard enough to understand the virus, which has been very complicated. But the behavioral piece, what are people going to do? How are they going to adapt? Not only is it hard, but it's been, it seems like it's been a moving target because there's no way that people were reducing. There was There were stretches this summer where, this respect wasn't being given. And it seems like, so early on panic and then complete you know carnival atmosphere this summer. And now we're back to some middle ground where there's a fair bit of respect. And I, I do pity the epidemiologists who have to get their models right, given this, the, the behavior changes. All right, guys, that's been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball on Sirius XM, two hours of sports analytics rolling into the second quarter now just wrapping up a conversation on COVID-19. We've got some sports to talk about, guys. The NFL is coming down to the wire on their regular season. With the whole crew here, I'm curious to hear what you've been paying attention to. Adi, Eric, Shane, what do you got in the NFL?
4: Well, I think the, the biggest NFL game this last week was obvious for two reasons. The Rams losing to the Jets by seven, you know, the line was minus 17. So there's a couple things about it that make it a notable game. The first thing is, let's talk about the statistical part first, which is only three t- three times actually in the last three years has a team up by 17 lost. It happened three times in the previous 30 years.
3: a <laughs> <Wait, wait, laughs> team up by 17, like with a, with no, a with the line ice, of 17, ice, yeah, not up betting by 17. Line, the betting yeah, line, with a betting line of the 17. With a betting
4: yeah. line of 17. It's happened like
3: a 17-point underdog is only won three times.
4: No, no. In the last three years, they've won three times. But if you look at the 30 previous to that, it was three times. So why is it happening more so now? Now, one argument, which we've made, matter of fact, recently on Wharton Moneyball, is that whether it's the betting lines, which sort of match in a lot of ways the mathematical models, are not very good in the tails. There's very little data of a team being 20-point favorite, 23-point favorite, et cetera. You know, I don't know, you know, think of a – Know an S-shaped curve. Eh, Fifteen-point favorite, eighteen-point favorite. Neither one of them's got that much chance, and so the the basically the likelihood, the the data, it's, it's flat in this area of the curve, and there's not a lot of information. And so the question though is, why is that happening more so now versus you know the thirty years prior to that? That's the question. And you could argue there's lots of arguments you can make, but to me that was the biggest thing that happened. We and it happened
3: about- twice. It didn't. I mean the jet, the Jets, Rams one will have probably the biggest kind of implications for the NFL going forward. But I mean, the Bengals Steelers, what was the line on that game? 14. Okay.
4: It was so still that's a big still, line. A no, 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 percent. that was a big, that was a big line too.
2: Yeah.
1: So and- I, 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 st- I speculated about this sometime in the last two weeks on the show about, I, 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 I would bet that the lines just have bigger era this year. There's a year effect. I, I don't know about this, the broader trend that you're talking about, Eric, but there's, there has to be a year effect. It just seems like it's, more, un- even more unpredictable than usual, even higher variance outcomes than usual. It's a simple empirical question. I just don't have mm-hmm. the data in front of me. Are the lines off by more this year than they typically are? And we well, by-
4: have to be the last three years, but yes, is it happening more this year? We could look at, but, the, the- but
1: Eric with, well, let me, let me be the boring stats guy to come back to you and say, is, do we, is that really unusual three in the last three versus three in the last 30? Do we know? I mean, it's pretty rare anywhere around it. Is it, how confident are we that that's not just, you know, random.
4: I would think if you did a binomial test on those differences in proportions, you would probably find something different. Three. And how do you know how to
1: bend it though? Now I'm really curious. How, I mean, you can't just say we had it for the last three years. So I'm going to say three out of three is bigger than no, three. No, no, no. Three I years.
4: didn't say three out of three. We count the number of games that there was a 17 point spread in the last three years or more. And we count the number of wins out of the number of trials. We do the same in 30 years and we have to count the. I mean, there's
3: a little, still a little bit of cherry picking with the seven. Little cherry picking, cherry point spread, right? But
4: fact, well, well, so I agree, uh, Shane. What we can do is we could actually compute a curve, right? Yeah, we could compute a curve as a function of the point spread. And look at whether it's the difference in proportion or we could look at the significance in p-value at a given spread of these three years versus previous three years and see if there's a kink in the function where there's some point in time where something has changed. Like at some point spread, does it get much worse than we would expect over the 30 years? Do we we have... But, Kate, I would not call it three out of three. I'd look yeah. at the number of trials, the number of
2: games. But no, I I, I, I'll, uh, let me add a couple of things. I just actually pulled up some data. I don't have last year's uh, numbers to add to it, but I have through 2018. Uh, and um, it used to happen much more often that there was a 17-point um, favorite. That's gotten rarer. Um, um, in the, maybe okay. that's because of parity. Um, but that used to happen. So it's happened 26 times since uh, in the last 40 years. 'm um, not including last year because I don't have that, um, or this year. So that's ha- how often it happens. Uh, it happens fewer than once a year. Uh, I, I, exactly seventeen points, or or seventeen and a half. I added the two together. Um, so obviously there's some, but there are very few. Even even worse than that. It's a very rare event. So. Yeah. It's that actually going about to be my times. question:
3: is whether it's becoming more frequent to have a spread that big or not. But it sounds like it's, it's not, actually it's becoming not, less it's actually frequent.
2: It's actually getting reverse; it's yeah. getting fewer of them. Um, it's only happened about uh, about ten times in the last ten years. Um, so, uh, actually, we, fifteen we, years. We so, three out of fifteen out of ten. That's 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 a lot more than it should have should be. But I think it's about a ten percent chance. Um, of winning, maybe between 5 and 10% chance. So
4: now let me go to, let me go to the next follow-up question on the same game, though. But let's, we have the best person in the world, Cade Massey, to answer this question. So by the Jets winning the game, they fell from the number one to the number two pick. Using whether it's your model or other models, how much draft capital? Let's say the Jets, I think this is the right way to think about it. If the Jets had to give up the number two pick and something to go back up to the number one pick, how much would they have to give up? To get back to the number one pick, so how much draft capital did they lose by winning that game?
1: I don't have the number off the top of my head. I would say there's
3: that. No way, Jacksonville would make a deal, right? I mean, have, I guess maybe there's no, something. It's not infinite. Wow. Well, Setting
1: that aside, okay. it's just the market. There's a market price. Whether or not you can have a buyer at their price this year, it's always unknown. But there's a market price, and I'm just going to kind of try to walk my way into a rough approximation. I would say that the halfway point is like the 10th or 11th pick. And so if you've dropped down to 10, you've, you've given up 50% of the market value. Let's just say that roughly. Um, but of course, it's not a linear drop. It's close to linear because it's so steep at that point. If it were linear, what would that mean, Eric? It would say one pick is worth 10%. But we think it's probably a little more than linear at the top, a little steeper, right? So somewhere between 10 and 20%, let's say a 15% drop. Now, that's on average across all years. We all know that the years aren't equal. And sometimes, anytime you got a quarterback who is a consensus number one pick, it gets even more valuable. And, and if you have a quarterback that gets called a once-in-a-generation talent, which is what's going to happen with Trevor Lawrence this year, it becomes even more valuable. So the market value drop, I don't know. I'm making this up, Eric. I'm trying to do it in a principled way, but I'm going to say 25% or something for a Trevor Lawrence, for a shot. So they might have
4: to give up if they wanted to trade back up to number one, let's say p- pretend that Jacksonville would do it. They would ha- they might have to give up at least another number one pick and maybe more.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
4: So that's a lot. That's a huge loss of capital by winning that football
3: game.
1: Well, tremendous if they, gain of pride if they would use it that way, this was a question we had on uh, from our, from our mailbag, Someone asked, you know, if it doesn't, if if people are so bad at identifying, you know, number one picks and number two picks are as good as number one picks, why does it really matter? Which is fair if they're going to use it, but the the real value in having those picks is dealing them. And um, so if they're going to if they're going to move it, then they lost some capital. If they're going to use it, it doesn't matter as much.
3: And I think that's kind of I it, it's such a fascinating topic because I think it really matters. The the kind of certainty, I mean, and again, we may be wrong about the certainty that we're placing on Trevor Lawrence, you know, or or Joe Burrow last year or whatever. But I think year to year, there's a lot of because there are some years where it doesn't, you know, that there's a lot more uncertainty about who the there isn't a consensus as much, you know, that's right. And the Mariota versus Jamison Jamis year, probably the Jets wouldn't be so upset to have the number two pick, right? Unless they had themselves internally a very strong opinion about those two. But this year, because You know, we we've got at least this purported generational talent, it makes a bigger difference.
1: Yeah, agreed, agreed entirely. I'm curious about your reactions to the game last night as well. So that was just about as surprising. The Cincinnati Pittsburgh goes in there for what should have been a waltz against what we have Cincinnati as the worst team. Massive Peabody has them as the worst team in the league, and it's not close. And they not only beat Pittsburgh, but they 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 had it was handily the entire game.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So the Brian Burke, our friend over at ESPN posted uh his 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 block winning rate chart in the middle of the game and so he's got run block on one axis and pass block on the other axis for the for the offense and he's got his you know algorithmic um new generation new next generation stats based model and pittsburgh's offensive line must be having a lot of trouble because they're looking like 30th in the league or so on both dimensions and when you've got an offensive line performing like that, it kind of doesn't matter what your QB is. Do you, did you guys watch this game? Do you have any take on what's going yeah, on? Yeah, I mean, I do, I, watch- I,
3: do, I do think that offensive line uh, does have some serious issues. Ben, ben was facing a lot of pressure. He also looked kind of – it's hard to kind of take out that pressure yeah. and, and kind of evaluate him in the absence of that pressure. I've been trying to do that with Cam Newton all year. It's very difficult to do. But um, Ben looked horrible – to the extent that I could kind of take the, the pressure aspect out of it. Ben also looked horrible. He was missing wide, you know, there's wide open receivers that he just wasn't seeing the passes weren't accurate, et cetera. So I think it's, it's partly Roethlisberger, um, you know, and it's partly his offensive line. It kind of makes me wonder, like, I mean, he was so good back in the day at kind of either taking hits or just sort of like basically yep. surviving yep. Yep. A, a, a really compacted pocket and still somehow getting it out to the receiver. And that may be something that he is, you know, has has lessened in. And it's, you know, it's been, it, it exposes, it's, it's more exposed now.
1: Shane, that's fascinating to me because his way of avoiding the rush was never a very athletic-based way of doing no, it. No,
3: he like- just stood there and let the guys kind of hang off him as he still made the throw. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that somehow not, somehow he's not. I, maybe I, and you know it could be that he's you know with injury and everything you, you know he he yeah because not be able more, to do that as
1: much now. Part of it was stature and durability because people would bump off of him pretty yeah pretty often. But part of it was pocket awareness and he he kind of shuffles. Some of these guys have much better awareness than others, mm-hmm. and they just make minor little adjustments to kind of shift as things go. And it's possible. It's a fascinating question actually. You would think that that kind of pocket awareness might get better with experience but maybe it doesn't maybe as frailty starts playing into a quarterback's mind, as an injury starts playing into his mind, he loses some of that awareness. That's interesting.
3: And, and I mean, like we can segue, that's a perfect segue. If we want to talk about kind of Carson, Carson Wentz versus Jalen Hurts. I mean, I think that's kind Hold of on one, one second. I just
1: want I just want to note that this, this kind of, this pocket presence question and mobility question is ripe for NGS. So this is the kind of thing we're going to know with precision here within the next couple of years, we're going to be able to, we're going to be able to measure, we're able to go back and code Roethlisberger for 10 years ago and compare the ability, his ability to maintain some space and how that changed over time. And I'm newly fascinated by the idea that, that um, even something as unathletic looking as that pocket presence might be affected by age it would be too bad for the Steelers if that's true okay Shane I'm sorry you said Jalen and Jalen Hurts and Carson
3: like you know I mean when I think when we kind of I mean we've all been kind of watching Carson Wentz's kind of evolution over the last few years and 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 kind of I've at least been kind of interested like how a quarterback that had such an amazing performance for at least you know a half a season before he had this big injury how how much he's kind of regressed away from that amazing performance and I think, you know, a large part of what I've observed kind of anecdotally, qualitatively is, again, his pocket presence is is gone. And I I, I don't know if that's something where injury kind of like injury, further injury concern, like as has a kind of mental aspect to it or, or what it is. But it, it does seem like he's an example of a case where it seems like injury has led him to have this like kind of a real reduction in his pocket presence. And of course, that kind of has downstream effects to the entirety of the rest of his game.
1: If, well, it's one it also, of those things like how how could it be any other way? I mean, talk about sympathy. How these guys, I don't know how these guys yeah. get back on the field after incurring some of the injuries they do. Maybe
3: right? the more surprising one is the quarterbacks, it does not happen too.
1: Right. I well, mean, how is Alex Smith out there playing playing football right now? It's just incomprehensible.
3: Yeah, they should they should name the comeback player of the year trophy after that guy, I think.
4: That's for sure. Look, I was also saying it's part it's what you're saying, Jim. If you know in some sense you're not gonna have time, number one, you rush your throws. Number two, you don't even look to throw the ball down the field. And also, when guys are open down the field, you don't even really have time to get them the ball down the field. So, you know, I think last night's game was a great example of not only could Pittsburgh not run the ball, but they couldn't pass protect well enough to do anything but a four to six yard pass. Why? matter of fact, you could argue Ben Roethlisberger was optimally playing given his, (laughs) his line. What else would you want him to do?
1: Yeah, you know, this shows the interaction. We, we tend to look at those uh, quarterback stats and say, well, he's throwing all his passes are short, his air yards, nothing with any air yards at all. But if he doesn't have the time to do it, that's not on him. That's on, that's on the guys that are blocking for him. Adi. Well, that's
2: what people have been saying about uh, Bradford and the Jets. He's had zero offensive line and, and, and injury over the last couple of years. He might not be as bad as, the, as, uh, as, as people claim, although I've heard people say he's no, he's really not good. So where, where what's the story on on him? Well, I think
3: we've got a better chat. I, I mean, now, now, if if the Jets, you know, I, I personally think that he 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 has. I have hope that he can kind of that Darnold can kind of turn it around on. You know, I, I was I was kind of thinking ahead to all. You know, I was expecting that he would be having to turn it around on a new team, um, yeah. before this week. But you know, maybe maybe it will be the Jets themselves that like end up kind of trying to turn him around well, if they the decide way, that they don't want to take a different point, quarterback.
4: Shane. I've I've listened to a lot of people saying. It's not obvious that even Trevor Lawrence is going to be that much better than right. Darnold. Darnold. Mm-hmm. and it's not obvious, and it's certainly not obvious, by the way, that they should take uh, Justin Fields with the number two pick.
1: Yeah, if that's no, you know, yeah, that's right.
4: there's no obvious evidence of that.
1: No, I we there's no question that we, we the quarterback gets too much blame for his production, good or bad. Mm-hmm. And Darnold, I mean, I think most people agree. Hell, even one of the Jets coaches confessed to not having developed him as well as he they would have liked. I mean, I, I think it's one of the most fascinating questions in the NFL right now: is can could Sam Darnold be re, rehabilitated? Soon. I mean, Carson, I, yeah, no, and I mean, and and, and Car, I, I think you
3: know, I I think. Um, I have more hope for him than Carson Wentz, just kind of given these kind of mental issues. But I, I think it, the Carson Wentz could potentially go but somewhere Shane, and be rehabilitated how, as well. How can
1: Darnold not have equally bad mental issues after all these years on the Jets? I mean, and they just...
3: Well, I mean, no, no, I, I, I guess Wentz's injury. I, well, I mean, injury A, A, A I, 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 I feel like the regression has been more with Wentz just because he was starting. I mean, we never That's saw right. Darnold That's never right. actually had the. Uh, Positive performance that we saw from Wentz for at least a half a season. Right? Yeah, Wentz yeah.
2: had MVP for half a season. Right,
3: so I, I guess that's the only distinction I make between the two. So I see that kind of drop off more dramatic, and therefore maybe it's harder to, you know, I I, I mean, I don't know what Darn Darnold's ceiling is, but I feel like he's got a better chance of achieving it than Wentz has of getting back to what you know we yeah. saw of Wentz earlier.
1: Well, well I hope they both career. end up somewhere else, and mm-hmm. we get to see this experiment. I hope
3: one, of, you know, maybe one of them will end up on New England.
1: Good. Well, there you go. Interesting. All right. One last game. I got to hear some thoughts on it. Then we got to move New Orleans, Kansas city.
4: Well, if I was, if I was new Orleans, I'd be somewhat encouraged by this game. I mean, you know, drew Brees definitely banged up and uh, still not playing at a hundred percent. No, Michael Thomas, their number one receiver. And, but the, the, and you say, well, they only lost by three sort of, I mean, here's the thing. It was a seven-point game. Kansas City's got the ball down at the uh, New Orleans five-yard line. They didn't happen to score a touchdown, but with like a minute left or something. And then the classic garbage time score where the Chiefs play an entirely different defense in the last minute that they had been playing the entire game. And let me just say, if Kansas City scores a touchdown there and goes up 14, they're going to play the same aggressive defense. And they're not – you know, it might have been a 10- to 14-point win. But I will say, New Orleans – has a good defense, a good offense, and they're one of the top two or three contenders in my view that actually has a chance to beat Kansas City. Mm -hmm. But even New Orleans, which, by the way, we thought has one of the best defense. I don't know how Massey Peabody has them ranked in terms of defensively, but I will tell you, I didn't even think Kansas city played that great offensively. And when they put 30 on the board or whatever it was, this Kansas city team can even put 30 or 40 on a very good defensive team. Right.
3: Yeah. I kind of, I mean, I know I'm not rational about this. You guys called me out last week, but, but, but I, I feel like Kansas City's is just kind of toying with people at this point. I I don't know. I, I, I don't see much stopping that offense at all, but I, I agree. I mean, I can't came out of that game kind of thinking, Good thought. I I I think both teams actually kind of had a a relatively good game. I do think Kansas City is kind of a a little bit of a level above, but I mean any given Sunday, I mean, you saying, know,
4: is this is, is the way to beat them: the 1990 Super Bowl all over again, like the Bills. Just you know, hope you hold them to field goals. They never punt the ball and beat them twenty to nineteen.
3: Run 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 a ton so that they get less possessions. Correct. Basically, how New England beat them a couple of years ago. And you know, both Tennessee and Buffalo are kind of could do well, that let's talk, let's talk or about baltimore. That baltimore baltimore let's, if they you
1: know let's talk about that because we got buffalo new england our final monday night game not final next to final monday night game uh it, I, lo- I just love seeing this afc east rivalry on a monday night late in the season and look at that the bills are seven point favorites How many well, yeah, i
3: don't i don't love to see that part of it but no it's, <laughs> it, it is it is fun you know I, I can i can take away my fandom and say it's fun to have multiple really good te- exciting young teams in the and the uh afc east and it i seems, buffalo i'm kind of pulling for buffalo even though they're up, not in that it, game but in general
4: teams that seem to me built that could beat kansas city tennessee buffalo and i'm going to even say miami a strong defensive team a team that can run the football but tennessee
3: can well, uh, you you're, you're you're sleeping on the other one Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Baltimore Browns. Yeah. The, I don't talk enough. about a team that can run the football. No, no, they have, look, Nick
4: Chubb in the history of the NFL. No one has averaged more per carry than Nick Chubb, by the way, no. not Jim Brown, not anybody. So let me just say they can run the football.
3: I don't I, mean to push back. I think we're all still getting used to Cleveland being a, a good team. So I'm I, I understand with
4: Tennessee. I think if, if Derek Henry can run for 200 plus yards, they can win that game.
3: They almost did last year.
1: I'm with you. Yep. Yeah. So we're going to see Tennessee against green Bay. Number one that's seed in the gonna NFC? Be probably, game. that's in yeah. Green Bay. The line is three and a half. What's Tennessee going to do there, Eric? Do are you, are you, you think we're going to learn something about the Titans this weekend? I, I think
4: what we're going to learn is that Green Bay's defense is not as good as we think, and I think Tennessee is going to run for a lot of yards.
1: Oh, look at that. All right. Man, everybody's got flaws. You got, this thing's such a moving target this year. It's everybody but KC, but I don't know. It's such a funny year. It seems it'd be surprising. Yeah, a little and, bit.
3: and again, like, you know, as much as I talk about Casey on softball, well, any given Sunday,
1: we've learned any that. Given this Sunday. Year, I think this, year, any given this Sunday. year, even, even more so. Right. All right, guys, that has been the second quarter of Wharton Moneyball. Come back and join us for the second half.
4: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball
1: on business radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on Sirius XM. We do this every week. You guys could reach out to us by Twitter or email. Twitter's at WMoneyball. Our handle on Twitter at WMoneyball. Hit us up with questions, suggestions, whatever you got. Our email, moneyball at Wharton.upin.edu. Moneyball at edu. We pick up those questions. We look at them. We respond to them as we can online. We love hearing from you. We've down to Eric and Shane. Cade here hosting. We got some college football to talk about. We finally wrapped up the regular season and the championships, the college championship, the conference championships, named the playoff, dealt with the pushback that many people gave over the playoff. So it goes Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, and Notre Dame who just lost by multiple touchdowns.
3: They didn't get lost. They got, they got wrecked. I mean, that was not a a particularly competitive game among teams that somehow are in the top four in the nation.
1: Eric was burning up the, the the group text with early in the game saying, I don't know, I, I don't know, they, I, I really don't know. The later in the game they got, the more definitive the answer was that they shouldn't have been in the playoff, but they made it. What would you have liked to have seen done, Eric?
4: Well, I, I just thought that, you know, I try to treat these last, especially the conference championship games, I try to treat them as if they were playoff games. And I just thought that Notre Dame's performance um, was unacceptable for a team that, you know, was trying to make the playoffs. I mean, they were beaten soundly by Clemson in that game. And, you know, if you know that your, you know, college football playoffs on the line, you can't get beaten whatever it was, 34 to 10 or whatever the final score was. You just can't. So to me, that disqualified Notre Dame straight out. I, I would not have put Notre Dame in, and forget whether I wanted Texas A and M or Cincinnati or you know. Let's. I'm not Coastal dreaming. Carolina. Coastal Carolina. I mean, forget Coastal Carolina, but I mean Notre Dame. I mean, come on, they played terribly, and there's no reason, by the way, there's no reason to believe they're playing Alabama.
3: Oh, that's going to be a. Uh... Oh, come on. Well, I mean, you know, again, any given Sunday, I suppose we just said, but I, yeah, that no, could. No, not that, bad. That, stuff. That, not that, that, stuff. Could, that I don't think that'll be pretty. I'll be honest with you. Um no, I mean this this season, I mean we've it's not like I've ever been opposed to expanding the playoffs. I've wanted to expand the playoffs in college football just like the rest of you guys for years. But this season, I mean, it would have been so nice to have Texas and in there. We could have had room for Coastal Carolina and Cincinnati, yeah. you know put Coastal Carolina up against Alabama, see what happens, you know. But well, uh, say what I'm it's, disappointed too it's too bad It's too bad. It really is. Four four is clearly not enough to kind of you know, account for like, you know, the football, you know, the good football teams at the end of the year.
4: Well, let me say what I'm disappointed in. You brought it up, uh, Shane. I I understand Coastal Carolina is not in the final. I I got it. But Liberty, like, I mean – you, I, I, let's see them play a major school <laughs> I, yeah, was, I mean, they can't yeah. play they couldn't play florida in the cotton bowl or te- i have i want them to play texas play auburn i mean yeah. I, I mean they don't even have to be in that next year look i'd love to see them play texas a&m but i mean okay but let's at least give them a game i mean liberty i'm not saying they're gonna thrash I mean, who knows but i mean that's not right
1: yeah. It's, no, I agree. Whether or not it's right. And it's, and I agree with you. It's not right. It's a lot less entertaining as well. We want to see bears ver- versus bulls in the Coliseum, right? We don't want to see bears against other bears. We want to see bears versus bulls. I want, damn see, it. I
4: want to see a game like a game that I've called many, many times the greatest college football game ever Boise state against Oklahoma. That's what I want to see. I want <laughs> to a see chance.
1: You roll those dice enough. And every now and then you end up with the 2007 Fiesta bowl,
4: yeah, I want to see Coastal Carolina. Look, let, let's put Coastal Carolina against – I named a bunch of teams. I'd, I'd be thrilled to see him play Texas. That would be a great right. football game, extraordinarily right.
0: entertaining. Well, it, it
1: may or may not be, but it would be a lot more interesting for damn yeah. sure. So let's walk through what games we did get because overall, I think especially after the crazy and you know, somewhat disappointing season, we had somewhat – we had so many canceled games. And a lot of games we would have liked to see just didn't play out. We didn't have much cross – conference stuff and so given all that i think the bowl slate it looks pretty fun actually we don't have as many bowls but um we have a lot we have enough tv for the holidays i'd say so let's just walk through some did it, are there any bowls that have your eye guys that you're especially excited about you've already mentioned coastal liberty being a bit of a disappointment for you let's just name it coastal is a seven point favorite on that and liberty of the bowls that i'm keeping a close eye on you know top 15 or so bowls Liberty's the only team that, that comes in below average on ESPN's FBI. So Liberty started out big this year. They were undefeated at the halfway mark or so, and then they kind of tailed off. And so they're actually a little bit below average according to ESPN's numbers. Um, what other games have your eye, guys?
4: Well, the game that's, I think, really interesting to me is the um, Cincinnati-Georgia game. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a game where, you know, many people at the beginning of the season, you always talk about priors, Cade, many people wouldn't have been surprised by Georgia being in the playoffs at the beginning of the season. Right. And they're playing Cincinnati. I mean, yeah. that's, to me, a fantastic football game. And that's, I don't want to call yeah. it Cincinnati's the outsider against the big Georgia, but maybe a little bit of that. But that game's got some juice to it. Cincinnati, no. no
3: I don't know if it's kind of a makeup from excluding from the playoffs, but at least they have an opportunity to kind of demonstrate that they are one of these kind of great teams by going up against sort of like, you know, I guess one of the, you know, kind of better teams in the SEC, at least they kind of get that opportunity. I Um, mean,
1: these, these, the the numbers from FPI, let's be clear are, I I don't know the exact weight on priors, but they are heavily prior influenced. And the reason that is, is because they're more predictive when they are. I mean, you, you should carry a lot of weight on your priors all the way through the end of the season if you want to optimize the predictions that come out of the power rankings. And so you can see that in their numbers because Georgia, for example, you mentioned the priors being high on them, Eric, they are still like number four in the, in the FPI. So you've got the big three and then a big drop and Georgia is the biggest of the non big three. And so that's part of that is preseason expectation. And a lot of that is based on the strength of the roster, but you've got basically kind of the 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 smallest of the big guys against the biggest of the small guys and i right. think you're right. I yeah, no, i mean if
3: run. there w- if there wasn't a team playoff, we could imagine that this was one of the games basically. Yes.
1: You know, yeah. i don't know that Georgia would have been able to finagle a way in. If, if it was a power rankings based thing, then yes, but they kind of didn't earn it any other way. They didn't earn mm-hmm. it on the field. And so we think they're good, but they have they probably have two losses. They didn't even make the east final out of the sec but so that's the peach on january 1 what else do you got
4: well the other game that's really interesting to me i mean you know it's it's kind of like two other again another t- two tough thing. oklahoma against florida is gonna be a hell of a football game yeah, i don't Alabama. know who's gonna win that game i can make arguments either way um i've watched a lot of both of them this year i think that's a competitive game i like the game
1: I think that's the best non-playoff game that that's OU and OU and Florida are like, they're, I don't know, fourth and fifth, fifth and sixth, something like that. in the FBI, that line is coming in at three, meaning Florida is favored by three. If you, if you look at the implied line by FBI, it should be on the other side. That's OU by 2.2. It, if anybody's got a home field, it's going to be OU they're playing that game in Dallas as they always do for the cotton bowl that OU is very familiar with that stadium. OU has been coming. Um, they started out with a couple of losses. They didn't really, They had a couple of players out. They're starting a freshman, a, a redshirt freshman quarterback who seems to have gotten better over the course of the season. Florida, on the other hand, I don't know what we really take away from that game against Alabama. They ended up giving them a hell of a fight, much closer than people would have expected, but mostly they were down by a couple of touchdowns most of that game. If you look at game control, but I don't quite understand the line on this one. The market says Florida by three, FBI says Oklahoma by more than 2. That's a, yeah, that's pretty- a
4: big spread. Big spread yeah. in that game for sure. That's an interesting game. Then the other last game that I don't know, maybe not last I've been, you know, Oklahoma State's been playing pretty well. And so Miami against Oklahoma state's an interesting game
1: too. It's a fun one. Now, you know, those are both alma maters of uh, coaching alma maters of Jimmy Johnson. It's so funny to think of Jimmy Johnson as coach coaching Oklahoma State. I just can't I don't have a visit. Uh, no, a-
3: that's 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 something back before I was following I things. I, I did not that that that's T.I.L. about Jimmy Johnson.
1: That's right. Well, we didn't have you know, we didn't have Jimmy Johnson awareness until he got to Miami, but he was one of those early Oklahoma State coaches and Miami. You Know that we thought Miami might make more noise this year than they actually did, but um, we got a couple of, that we say the same thing with Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State was one of the favorites in the Big 12 coming in, and they were undefeated for through the first few weeks of the season. And then they picked up a, a number of losses that people didn't think they would later on in the year, and so it's a, probably two disappointing seasons, um, but two exciting teams to watch. And then um, one that,
4: other, the Dave, the other David versus semi David versus fly, you'd have to say is Northwestern Auburn, right? Yeah. I mean. You am kind of excited for that. At, you know, smaller of the Giants, but mm-hmm. he certainly has won a national title in the last couple of years. And then Northwestern, you know, has been historically the doormat in the Big Ten. And not recently, but I mean, they played well this year. And there was, you know, the Bradlow Doomsday scenario where they were going to end up in the championship game and play Ohio State. And so that's certainly an, in this way, I'm interested in the same way I'm interested in Cincinnati against Georgia. Same, Yeah,
3: yeah I agree.
1: Spot on. And again, it's a little bit Bears versus Bulls. I mean, Auburn is, you know, as traditional as those SE schools come. Um, some would say as dirty as those SE schools come. And you've got Northwestern, who's kind of a Rice Stanford Duke, you know. They call that the they got they got the the name was the fighting Reese Davises midseason <laughs> because because some sports analysts called them a bunch of Reese Davises out there. So I'm fascinated by that game. I mean, the the line here is Northwestern by three and a half. I would not have expected that um, because I guess I've got such an SEC bias and maybe a little bit of anti-Northwestern in there. But if you look at FPI, if you look at FPI, this is ESPN's power ranking numbers. It would be Auburn by almost three. So this is another one of those big swings that I don't really understand. You've got You've got the betting market saying we like Northwestern. We're convinced by Northwestern. And you've got the power ranking still saying now what has happened is Auburn fired their head coach. So who knows what's going to happen with the team. They, they lost Malzahn after all those years, sometimes teams bounce back after that, but it's not like Malzahn had a disastrous season. It's not like he was hated by his players. It's they, but they have a big turnover. So that's probably one of the big factors coming into that, to that line. Let's name just a few other ones, fellas, as we walk through or get your thoughts on a couple. Um, you are getting a, a big 12 rematch in Texas, Colorado. They played a famous uh, conference championship years ago that Texas won very big. And they're favored again this year by 12. Um, it could be possible. Tom Herman's last coach game as coach of the Longhorns. That would be interesting. Make some people happy. Um, another, old conference rematches Arkansas and TCU y'all might not be quite as turned on by Southwest conference history as I am but come on TCU Arkansas baby yeah. you can't get excited for that by the way that is the Texas if I, if I could
3: just see a few people wearing those weird weight razorback hats or whatever I I'm, I'm having, oh yeah
1: you can always yeah. count on that maybe, the
3: I a, maybe I
4: have the wrong thoughts but I thought Arkansas was a little bit down in the last couple of years. So I'm not as excited because I've thought of, maybe I have maybe I'm thinking of TCU as being up as old news too. They you know, were, they were in the top 10, you know, let's it, call it two to five years for the last couple of years. Not this year. I'm okay. thinking like TCU has been up. Arkansas has been down. That's why I'm a little less excited, but maybe I've got it old news. No,
1: you're, you're, you're just down. You're, you're back a couple of years. And, and TCU has been on a good run and Arkansas has been on a real bad run. Um, since the end of the B- Belima era, B- Belima era, but Arkansas has had a better year this year and TCU has been a little down the last couple. So they've kind of moved towards each other. This one, the Horn frogs were favored by five and a half and FPI would put it at more like almost nine. So there's a little bit of an edge there maybe for TCU Patterson. I don't want to go against Patterson with, you know, these got, I don't know, two weeks, this is a new year's eve game so he's got two weeks prep on this he's one of the great coaches well let's go back let me actually
4: go back to something you said earlier in the show Cade, but it relates to uncertainty because of this season and everything else so normally you know when Massey Peabody looks at differences between, let's call it the, other oh, it's the Massey Peabody line and the betting line, you say, well, you know, 3.4 point difference seems to be significant, might even be something where you could call it an edge. Would you increase that number this year because of the increased uncertainty? <laughs> yes. Would, would exactly. you need to say, you know, I need to see five, six, as yeah. opposed to the historical three, four.
1: It's a, it's a great point, Eric. And you, you, you could, you know, if we, if we were tracking this closer, we would tell you something about how harder games are to predict this year than the past. And so we could adjust it empirically. The other thing is these bowls are generally harder to predict. Okay, my other question. Mm-hmm. A lot of things yeah. change. Coaches get fired. Players um, don't play. They sit out more now getting ready for the NFL. Um, so there's a lot of uncertainty. I mean, this is, you know, this year has been more uncertain and now this is the bowl season of this year. So, I mean, I, you know, if you if you have some inside information, there are a lot of edges to be had here because these have to be pretty soft. Um, a couple others that jump out to me more on rematches: uh, Texas A and M for you know they, they, these guys were number five and they had a good case for being in the playoff. They go to the Orange Bowl. It's so some of these bowls kind of interesting. So, so the Ags end up in the Orange Bowl. That's a weird combination. It's a little bit like OU in the Cotton Bowl. It just doesn't make sense to me. OU's old Big Eight. OU ought to be in the Orange Bowl. AM ought to be in the cotton. It's a flip. But AM is playing UNC, which means they're playing Mac Brown. So the last time Texas and Texas AM played was 2011. Mac Brown was a coach in 2011. Justin Tucker hit that, I don't know what it was, 40 something yard field goal on his Thanksgiving or the day after Thanksgiving. The last time Texas played, that was Mac Brown. He's got a great quarterback in Sam Howe. That should be an interesting game. Ags are favored by seven and fpi agrees with that so you, you know,
4: the interest in that game you know some games are interesting more because the coaches you know it's jimbo fisher against mac brown in
2: that
1: game yeah yeah, so yeah. That,
4: that already brings an interest level to me about the game because i do believe jimbo fisher should have gone i think texas and should have been in the playoffs i think you uh you know notre dame should not have been but either way um and also again well unc has played well this year that's not the game I was hoping Texas A and M was going to be
1: playing. Yeah, it's a little bit. I agree. Yeah. I mean, they, they they Sam Howell is a is a top tier quarterback, and so they get that on the other side. But otherwise, it's a little bit of a come down for those guys. I agree. But Eric, you mentioned these fun quarterback, these fun head coach matchups. Ole Miss Indiana. It could be a Jimmy Stewart movie. I mean, this is Lane Kiffin, who's like a villain. He's the young villain, swagger, glib against Tom Allen, who's one of the most earnest coaches out there, old school. And beloved. And he's having such a great season. Indiana's had such a great season. They're down their quarterback, but they're still favored by six and a half here. So this is, you know, distinctly second tier big 10 going against second tier sec. And the big Ten's coming out on top. According to the betting line, the FBI likes it even better. FBI has it like 10 and a half. So there's a four point edge there according to FBI, but watch it for Kiffin versus Allen, man. You just won't see a bigger contrast in coaches. Then Giffen versus Allen. Though I like the one, your name, and Jimbo Fisher, Mac Brown is kind of fun as well. All right, fellas, that has been the third quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. we got a fantastic interview coming up. Come back and join us. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball. On Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now, our interview segment this week. Delighted to welcome Sam Schwartzstein. Sam Helped run, helped create and run the XFL last year and has expertise on league design, rule changes, optimal rule design. He's working in the chess gaming area now, but he's an avid football watcher, played football, and uh, has some interesting things to say about football and other sports. So, Sam, good afternoon and welcome aboard. Thank you for having me on. Glad to have you. Glad to have you. We watched with great interest. Last year, as you guys made a run at spring football, it seems like three years ago now. I mean, with, the, with what happened with COVID. Oh, Eric's showing his D.C. Defenders shirt. That's right. We had the D.C. Defenders guys on the show about this time last year. Um, and it's just amazing to me how kind of anything that was going on January, February in 2020 just gets obliterated by COVID-19. But I suspect it lingers in many ways for you. Um, but before we dive into that, Sam, let's get more background on you. So I said that you played football, um, but take us all the way back. Where where do you where did you grow up and how did you end up at Stanford and what happened after Stanford?
0: Yeah, so I um I was born in Connecticut. Um, my dad had a tire shop out in uh, Greenwich, and then we moved to Texas when I was seven. My parents didn't really know what football was, you know, you, they were watching the Super Bowl family. Um, and then I went to a small town that had a dirt road as the main road, still FM 1709. So, technically, hold
1: on. I'm sitting down here in Texas right now, Sam. So, where is Farmer Market South Lake. 1709?
0: I'm in Southlake. So, um, okay. we moved down here in '96 when they finally paved the road. Okay, um, hold uh, on.
1: You're, you're making it sound like a poor place. This is like Southlake Carroll. This is what, oh, we yeah, well,
0: I'm, I'm, I'm a dragon. Yes, but you have to understand we we came from humble beginnings right before okay. the, the, the airport comes in and the whole town changes. Southlake was right. the, not that old of a town, but no, Southlake is the creme de la creme. Yes, I'll, I'll, I'll. All, go to that. How many,
1: how many state titles have they at least played for in the last 20 years?
0: Well, I went to state three times in high school. Jeez. My, um, my brother once. And then, you know, I I lost my first game my senior year of high school. And then uh, we lost two t- two games that year. We played Miami Northwestern. Teddy Bridgewater was the backup quarterback for that team. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Levante David was the like, like the fifth best linebacker on their team. He was one of the eight guys who didn't go to Miami, um, and now he's the only one who's still playing. But guys like Sean Spence and and then we lost to uh, Abilene. I think Taylor Potts was the quarterback then. Um, but yeah, right, so this is
1: this is big time. This is as big as high school football gets. It's six A top class in Texas, one of the top performing high schools. So that's where you grew up. You happen to grow up there. And then you went up to Stanford,
0: yeah. So I I played, I was in the same class as Andrew Luck and David Mm DeCastro, um, Jonathan Martin, Griff Whalen. So we, we, Chase Thomas, we had a great class there. Got you know, first year we didn't go to a bowl, and then we kind of brought it up. Um, fourth year we were, um, highest ranked at number two. We lost to Oregon, but then played in the Fiesta Bowl that crazy game against Oklahoma State. Um, that was one of the you know, the original aspects of one of the reasons why I hate. Uh, college overtime and why it needed to be changed is because there's so much advantage to going second uh, in college overtime. Yeah, so right, right. That's where it really started for me. I had I had the advantage one time in college against USC, um, and so then you know I stayed for fifth year, get a, a Pac-12 championship, captain of the Rose Bowl championship team. I like to say those who stay will be champions. Andrew and Dave and a lot of my teammates went to the NFL to become millionaires. So I stayed to be a champion of <laughs> my school. I care a lot more about my school. Uh, and then I worked in Silicon Valley for a little bit, um, you know, helping Ched, uh, make uh, some products for college students. Um, and then I got a call from uh, Oliver Locke, Andrew's father. He said, hey, I took a job in professional sports. I want you to come work with me. I want you to build the game of football the same way you build a product. Um, wow. let's, 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 let's do it a little bit differently than everyone else has done, where you've taken traditional you know, football experts um, and just say, here's what I think we should do. Here's my personal bias with the game. Mm-hmm. And um, we wanted to build it from, uh, you know, a true product element. So we built it for the customer. You know, mm-hmm. I had games in college where I had 43 offensive plays. Um, we had three tight ends, sometimes eight offensive linemen in a game. <laughs> uh, that's not what fans wanted. So I didn't build the game for me, right? I didn't build a – I built the game that the fans told us we wanted, did genuine research, 6,000 fans polling. Then we okay. brought in experts to actually digest those rules, We had a hundred rules at the start and we ended up with about 15 after iterative testing process. We tested our our fancy kickoff uh, over uh, probably 300 times before we ever put it on TV.
1: Okay. Okay. So when you look back on your experience with these rules, the process sounds fantastic and unusual and it benefited from, from you guys coming in from scratch, right? It's harder to make changes to a game that has existed for decades. What would what's what of those rules are you happiest about? What are those rules are, do you think might have the greatest potential if other places would adopt them?
0: Yeah, I have I have two two or three rules that I'm really really proud of. Um, the first is the kickoff. Um, you know, I, I, you're going to hear me say this a lot. What problem we're probably trying to solve for. really, it's only about fixing problems, not things that work. And there's a serious problem with the kickoff from both a, a player safety standpoint and a viewership standpoint. Uh, over seventy percent of kickoffs are touchbacks, so there's it's a it's an untimed down. We called it a meaningless play, um, mm-hmm. and that's for good reason. They wanted to limit the number of concussions that took place on that play. Right? Mm-hmm. There's the highest likelihood of you have three times more likely to get a concussion on that play than any other play. Um, so they just tried to get rid of the play, minimize the amount of the times you see the play, you lower concussions. So uh, it's just a not you're not solving the right thing. You're not solving for what caused the concussion. You're just trying to eliminate the play that does it, mm-hmm. but without. Going all the way and eliminate like the AAF did. So, what we did is we identified how the concussions took place, and it's because the players start ten yards apart, sprint thirty-five yards, and then cause a collision. Mm-hmm. So that high-velocity impact. So, we just started the play where they normally take place, and um, we had a ninety-six percent return rate with zero injuries. So, uh, tell
1: us tell us what rule you put into place for the XFL.
0: So, what we did is um, instead of having the players start ten yards apart and kick it, you now had to elect to kick it deep or you had to elect to onside kick it, right? Mm -hmm. There was no surprise onside. It's 1% of 1% of kicks, right? 1% Mm -hmm. of onside kicks are onside. 1% of those are surprise. Um, So what we did is we just said, you know what? You'll make a decision. You'll kick it deep or you'll onside, and you'll start the players. we had the kickoff coverage team start at the 35, their return team facing them at the 30. The ball would be kicked. It had to be kicked – it had to uh, be touched by a player – on the team, there's one player to return that ball. Once he touched the ball, the play began. So we had an audio cue and a, and a visual cue to let the players know the play had begun instead of starting the ball on the kick. And so we take that long run up away, and now the collisions only take place for five yards.
1: Yeah. So just to be to be precise, you're saying the kicking team is lined up on the other team's 35. The plus 30 team is lined up on their own 30. So there's five yards difference from those guys, and no one's moving until the guy catches the ball. Got it. All right.
0: And probably the second rule, um, well, yeah, we had 90% return rate. Um, You know, it, it, it really made the play exciting. We had some big returns. Yeah, Sam, wouldn't that cut down? This is Eric
4: Brother, Wouldn't that cut down the number of returns? Because there's or you could argue both ways. One would be there's so many men near the ball once the ball is caught. The other way you could see it is you could almost treat it like when someone breaks through the line of scrimmage, and therefore everyone's up at the line. And therefore, so which did you find empirically actually happened?
0: So we had a goal. Um, you know, we looked at expected points um, added because I wanted to increase the number of points scored. So I wanted the ball to be closer to the end zone that, you know, but at the starting position. So the NFL is around the 27, 28-yard line. We were on, like, the 32-yard line. So we actually got the ball a little bit further um, than the NFL did. Uh, you know, the first time I saw it, we were with we tested with two Mississippi JUCOs. And uh, my buddy, Brian Kilmeade, he turns to me and goes, what do you think is going to happen? I said, I have no – Idea. I have no clue. This is it. It Started out as sugar packets on a table when Oliver was presenting to TNT. I gave him a set of sugar packets (laughs) to present this. Sweet and low versus, uh, uh, yeah, sweet and low versus. I forget the pink one. Um, And then Splenda,
3: uh, probably or something. Yeah yeah.
0: sweet and low Splenda and sugar was the ball. And so, you know, then it was a PowerPoint presentation. Then I had to actually have people do it. and I had no clue what it turned into was a a very large running play. Like the widest running play, and we we tested wow. with that sounds goals. great. And so it's like you know, so then I drew a bunch of cards, and it was wide zone, inside zone, trap, um, reverse, different running plays that you just so your the best sp- coaches for that play were O line coaches, yeah, right? Yeah. The teams that had yeah. the most success, the O line coaches integrated because they were running a lot of those same techniques. You didn't want linemen there. We saw teams that put defensive linemen at the L three and R three. Those those were kind of the big places people returned but it's still a speed game it's still there's so much space involved you don't want to have those big uglies out there that you know aren't fast enough and so we had a return for a touchdown on a a reverse and then a cross block and there were a lot of hit or miss Um, we were seeing a lot more innovation on it towards the end of the season you
1: know Mm -hmm. because this
0: is an iterative thing and what makes football great is you don't see the same thing week to week you never do right there's going to be four teams that run speed option next week because they saw the chiefs run it Right. right someone's going to be option against the Saints next week and that's what makes beautiful uh, the football beautiful and so we saw that evolution each week as well
3: um right. sam did you uh i know the nfl at least has uh, there's been talk about potentially replacing the onside kick with something like like a fourth down that would like long yardage or some kind of option where the kicking team would at least have a chance to retain possession but would be in a less dangerous kind of scenario than the onside kick uh kind of represents did you guys experiment or explore any kind of non i guess kicking options uh, yeah
0: that's a that's a great point the aaf was uh did that um there's one there's a health and safety issue as a former fat guy um well i'm still a little bit fat but you know i played (laughs) offensive line and uh you know what happens in if you we got rid of the the extra point kick as well but if you do the way that that play with no onside kick and you just have the offense stay out there Say so you have a 12-play drive. Now you have to go for two to get the points. And now you have to onside kick – or you don't have the onside kick. You have that play and you convert. You never left the field. Now we're putting guys over 300 pounds on the field for 30 plays possibly. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, a, that's a big health and safety issue. So we were nervous about that. We liked keeping the foot in football. That was kind of a mantra in our, in our place. Um, mm-hmm. And I think what, what happens is the onside kick happens so rarely – um, you can do more about engaging with the players beforehand, and then also, honestly, the way you should approach rule changes is education first, technology integration second, and then change the rule. Uh, if you look at Kevin Kelly, he's he was he's one of my close friends, um, uh, high school football coach out of Arkansas. He's changed the game. He onside kicks every time, never punts. That's mm-hmm. kind of his thing. But he's really You've just, had
1: him on the show before, Sam.
0: Great, awesome. Yeah, he's just a great play caller too. Um, but if you do the watermelon kick, it's not nearly as dangerous. Right? If you do the helicopter kick, it's not nearly as dangerous. If you're doing the same bounce kick, now it's a dangerous play. But you're doing also an inefficient play. Right, If you update it, it's a little bit you know, better. So we actually put the players back. One of our rules was don't make it, the game more dangerous for players. You can't put a rule in that like, you know, the original XFL had to scramble. Um, and their um, you know, no fair catch rule. Um, so we, we didn't want to make that uh, an issue.
1: All right. So we're talking to Sam Schwartzstein, Sam, longtime football watcher and co-creator of the XFL. He had an important role there as director of football operations, innovation and strategy, largely game design. And he continues in that role before we hear about what happens comes next. I want to hear about this second. We, we ask you of the many rule innovations that you pioneered at the XFL. You said you had two you're especially excited about the kickoff change. And what was the second?
4: I hope he picks the one
0: that we talked about on the air a lot. Let me hear Sam here. I know well, there's one I loved. So I have a passion project behind uh, the coach to player communication technology, ah, um, okay. it, and and game timing. Right. So when Vince announced the league, he said he wanted to have a two hour game, okay. And then when I got there, we didn't have any TV partners. So he's you know now we're at like you know we get to a two and a half hour game, and I said, well, there's 52 commercials minutes. Um, I can get you in a two and a half hour game easy if you don't have commercials. And then we add in the ESPN and Fox, and now we have a full commercial load, and now I have to get. Game to be guaranteed under three hours because we had the Heidi game situations where we we were told that when we first signed the contract we we're going to kick you off the air if it goes long, right. um, and you know people don't remember the Heidi game, but you know that we had a fear of that. Oh, some of us remember it quite well. Oh, right. it's, it's
3: it's it's part of the lore. It's an accepted yeah. part of the lore.
0: Good, yeah, it's canon. Um, so what well, you know, I had to come up with a way to get the same number of plays because that's the really the only number you can account for to guarantee you're going to have the same number of points as an NFL, right? Cause you don't know when the touchdowns going to happen. You don't know when the points are going to happen. So you have to have a play. So I needed to make sure I had as many or more plays as the NFL. Um, and then, so I was looking at college coaches. We hired a bunch of pro coaches. My, my offensive coordinator, Pep Hamilton, again, we ran 43 plays some games in college. I needed him <laughs> to run 70, you know, I needed him to go fast. So, I had to work out these, these timing rules. We watched, um, 60 NFL games broke that additive. We took the NFL scraper data. Ben Baldwin helped out a lot. We took that data. Um, we then put, um, about 14 extra columns of data for, to, to get better on the timing and really understood how long it took. Not only, you know, with the play clock, Hey, you want more play, Sam, just lower the play clock from 40 seconds to 30 seconds. Yeah, right. Easy. right. But there's so much more involved in that. Um, we had to look at how long it took to call a play, how long it took to execute a huddle and how long it took at the line of scrimmage. So it's 19 seconds to call a play eight seconds uh, at the line of scrimmage and three seconds at the huddle. And so, you know, what I did was I said, okay, I can eliminate the huddle. Boom. I've got three seconds back. So they have 31 seconds. Now I need to make my coaches call the game faster. Well, I'm, let me hire you six months earlier than other leagues have hired, educate you on here's how you're going to change your play call. Instead of calling two jet, uh, scat, why hockey? X over. Maybe we do the Earnhardt Perkins systems, and you just have one word. Right? Mm-hmm. Two words. You can. Uh, th- there's. You can adjust that. You don't have to go traditional mm-hmm. West Coast terminology. Um, then we had uh, to add in the coach to player technology. One of the biggest issues um, with college football is their signals. Sign stealing is a huge issue mm-hmm. with that. It's. It can win you the national championship if you catch my drift. And. Uh, <laughs> There's people that steal signs and that's really one of their issues. Now they don't integrate it because it's a fairness thing and not all schools can afford it. Well, I can put it into your schools for less than the new swimming pool you're putting in um, or your new slide, right? It's, it's not that expensive. And so being able to execute that, we then made our play clock 25 seconds plus a ball spotter. So we had a variable and a fixed time, right? So that ball spotter could move. I mm-hmm. told him average seven seconds, but at the end of the game in two minutes, just get there as fast as you can because the coat, the other teams are already up tempo. Mm-hmm. So why 25 and seven? That's 32 seconds. The average NFL play can get off at 31 seconds. They have a nine second buffer. I was targeting a five second buffer. So we had about a uh, 25 seconds between plays. The NFL is 31 seconds between mm-hmm. plays. That's mm-hmm. how we average with the same commercial load, two hours and 51 minutes. Mm-hmm. Now no one else sees that we called it invisible efficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was passion project for me because I had to get my team to create a predictive model using all this data to then ultimately figure out if I pull this lever here, how does it affect there? How, how am I affecting my team, my game um, if I get rid of two timeouts, but now I've added other things in.
3: Right. Please, please work with major league baseball and, and, and i mean honestly can we if you can get if you can get a red sox yankees game under four hours for example i think you will have made a major contribution to sort of to sports to well, sports funny society.
0: You funny you say that because um you know my job title is one of those weird job titles, director of football operations innovation and strategy uh i took that from chris young now the gm of the rangers because that's what he did at major league baseball right they they right. tested they were probably the closest to what we did. Um, they have just a really hard time going upwards with all the cool stuff they're doing in the minors and in their, their New England league, right, with yeah. the robot umps and things like that. But, you yeah. know, what he's done, and, you know, Chris, if you're listening, give me a call because I love what they did. <laughs> um, at least experimenting and trying things
1: yeah absolutely well they do have the benefit in baseball of having those minor leagues it's perfect for experimentation eric you said you had a rule change that was a particular favorite of yours
4: well i may have this wrong but wasn't there a different number of points you got like going for it from this yard line there was one
0: two and three points that you got right yeah
4: yeah Yeah, so the offense like after you scored a touchdown
0: you could go for three if you wanted to i loved it that's my third favorite uh rule um you know, it was one we tested a lot of, um, you know, and we went back and forth on, um, having it be a seven points. And then we had a two and a, a one on a two point play to kind of help with some of the data entry. You no, know, like when I talked to some of our data partners, they're like, we've never put a three point play in after an extra point. And it's like, well, just put the number. and goes, our, our data streams are going to all be messed up if you do that. So, um, <laughs> I loved, I loved that, uh, that rule change. And we used expected points and percent chance to score as well as looking at run pass. So it was a data one, but also real football. So I'll talk about data a lot, but I played high school football. I played the spread, you know, very successful there played West coast, hard nosed Jim Harbaugh, David Shaw football in college. So I love all kinds of football, but you know, I also want to make sure that what fans see is what they get. So if, if you do the one point play from the one you have a higher percent chance to score. It's about like a 70% chance to score versus where we had at the two at 50%. But you'd see the same play call over and over again. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no coach that I can just convince them. Uh, don't call boom and lead dive and QB sneak those plays. So it's still a, and they think they can get it every time. So you're just only going to see one point plays. When we moved it to the two, it hurt our goal of how many points we wanted to score. Cause you're less likely to get that many points, but it now makes you more likely to go for two and go for three. At our, especially going for three. Um, and so that was, a, that was an awesome rule change for us. It made it so that an 18-point game and then the game you had to keep watching. Point spreads were a big deal to us, making sure that the, the games were close. The problem is that we had a really cool overtime, and I still don't know the likelihood if it affects it or not, but we never got an overtime in our games. Uh, we probably had too few games, but, but our overtime was a really cool rule change too. Um, but we didn't get that because of our, our points difference, and, but it made the games exciting and
1: close. Sam, uh, give us what you wanted to do in overtime because that's something that leagues are actually still playing with. You know, college is relatively recently tweaked. NFL still tweaks. I mean, if you could tweak those, what would you do?
0: Yeah, so we had um, – our goals for overtime were fairness, number one. I always bring up the the 2007 Fiesta Bowl. Um, you know, uh, uh, Coach Stoops – imagine telling the story in front of Coach Stoops uh, in a room of 100 people. But, you know, they get that ball first um, in overtime. Adrian Peterson runs outside zone. He scores. They go for one because they have to. Boise State gets the ball. Well, they don't have to, but you lose if you don't pretty much. Boise State gets the ball. They get a fourth down. They have to convert that fourth down. They do. Then they score. And then they decide they go for two to win the game, and they win the game. Oh you wait, like,
4: that's the. I've said it many times. That's <laughs> assuming it's the game I'm thinking about. That's the greatest yes. football game ever played. This one with the hook and ladder. Yeah, <laughs> this is on the one with the Statue of liberty. liberty to win the to, to win it. Yes. This is the greatest football game ever played.
0: Yes, it, it, it quite possibly is. And then I, forget, I think his name was Joe Johnson proposed to his cheerleader girlfriend. Exactly. That is that is pure <laughs> Americana. And what makes it even more pure Americana is that it's unfair because <laughs> the, the team that went second, if you would just flip the coin toss. That first fourth down, Boise State is has to kick the field goal, and then the this team that goes second, we know Adrian Peterson scored on his first play, and it's an isolated play, nothing that the defense did yeah. previously because we have to start the ball at the twenty five. So that to me is why it was an unfair rule. We also had to get out in a lot of time, so college overtime can go on so long, yeah. And it's a health and safety issue. So what we did is we we just stole, and you know any great product is just a, a stealing of other things that you can put together. So. We took the uh, penalty kick shootout um, from soccer, but instead of making it like a mini game, we actually did all of them players. So what college football is after I think their fifth overtime is a two point conversion shootout. Yeah. We had that. But what was really cool. The first time we tested it, I put the the teams on different sides of the field because again, one of the issues of in stadium experience, when I played at USC in overtime, I was over here at the South end zone and my brother was in Inglewood all the way to the other side of the field, he couldn't see anything, right? Yeah. So I wanted to make the in-stadium experience exciting. But we could that mean we only have half-line officiating crew. So that means uh, instead of the traditional eight-man crew, we had four officials on either side. It's not enough to cover down eligibles, but it let us go fast because, you know, we had to get out under three hours. We had a two-hour and 50-minute game, three-minute commercial break. I have five minutes for overtime. I can still get you out. And we did um, – Single play possessions from the five, which is our two, was our two-point conversion location. And so it was just like a two-point conversion shootout. But when we had them on different sides of the field, you could go, once that endgame whistle happened, you could start the other play.
1: Oh, I see. Really frenetic Indeed. going wow. back and
0: forth. And so yeah. in each inning or round we had there, um, if I had them on different sides of the field, I could do a round in like 35 seconds. Wow. We ended up at about a minute around because we needed that full change the lines and so it was five rounds um 30 likelihood to score so only three of the 10 would score so scoring would be at a premium um the networks kind of wanted us to move to the three or the two um we might have moved there later if we had seen it and not enough scoring had happened because no one wants to go there and just like not and see unsuccessful play you know i had a goal of having good looking football which is hard to quantify as hard as i tried
1: you could you could have chosen i mean the shootouts in soccer which said provided your original motivation they're pretty high success rate right this is the stops are kind of the momentous occasions
0: and then yeah and so that that's kind of the route we wanted to go we might have gone to the two and had to be a 50 50. Um, I just didn't want to uh, but see- you wouldn't
3: you wouldn't want to go to the one for that same problem as previously yeah. you'd only just see the same yeah. play over and over again
0: yeah. and one of the things that was interesting was trying it to go one two three one two three right or just do three rounds and do a one point two point three point but what, what I couldn't have is the same problem we had in college football I didn't want the team that went second to have information so also in our game the defense couldn't score an interception was the same as a batted ball yeah, because right, it, right. I called it, inter- it information gained so I think' other-
1: Terrific. Listen, we're about to run. I feel like we could talk with you for a long time, but we're about to run out of time. Uh, I, I have to ask, you've gone on to work in chess. You've gone on to work in designing leagues and tournaments. It's something that we talk about here every now and then. Um, two questions. One, one, like what, is there a tournament design out there that really turns you on that you think other leagues ought to learn more about? So for example, my example is NCAA golf where they play, um, what is it they played? They played stroke for a while to determine who, who who qualifies and then they play team, not knockout. So like half the tournament is stroke and then half the tournament is match play at the end, which just seems like a wonderful way to distill it down in the maximally fair way and then let them decide it on the field. Um, and one of the reasons I'm asking this question, Sam, and it's so lovely to talk to you this time of year is because everyone's up in arms as they are almost every year about the college football playoff system. And you know we've tweaked it every few years for my entire adult life and people are still whinging and we're going to keep on tweaking. I'm curious what a guy like you would suggest after spending as much time thinking about these things as you have. And now your, your work, your life's work is tournament design and game design. So two questions there. Is there a favorite format around the world for you? And then any suggestions for college football?
0: So I I don't know if I can give a favorite because everything's so different. I I mean, I love the, I love the beauty of BCS college football because that's what I played where every game mattered. Mm-hmm. Um, and we let it up. To oh, the you mean team. every game? So
4: the um, Notre Dame Clemson game mattered this last weekend. No, and no, no. I no,
0: no, no. Playoff. Yeah. I, I, I like the, the BCS. BCS. More. The BCS yeah. is acceptance that we have a flawed system. We let okay. the computer do it, and we got to yell at a computer. <laughs> do at computer. All <laughs> okay. right. You know, before, it, it might have been even better when Colorado and Miami just say, guess what, we're national champions. Like, that's, that's also <laughs> kind of interesting because it lets yeah. you know that this, this thing's flawed. You know, again, let we talk about Texas, I played in a lot of playoff games in high school. Um, to me, the way college football should do it, if you want to, the, you should maximize what problem you're solving for. We have, we have the game that has the most important games week to week. Every game matters. So we should maximize that amount of games. If we need to have a playoff, you, which you shouldn't, but if you're saying we have to have a playoff to decide that, that end of your success is more important than end-of-beginning, expand it as far as possible. To me, I would go Texas high school football. I would have ten te- <laughs> I would have ten, uh, seven teams in a league. You play your conference games. You have three other out-of-conference games. You get seeded, and there's a 64-team playoff. The first round is all the higher seed team gets on an extra home game. That's where you get your six home games that a lot of the teams get from now on they're, they're right now. Most teams have six home games. You earn a six home game by playing another one. Cause ticket revenue is so important. And then you have 32 bowls. Guess what's remaining 32 games.
2: Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so
0: you just dive into the playoff. If that's what you want, you now maximized all of those playoff games to be even higher. It's the only way you can do a critical mass tournament style. When you mm-hmm. do four teams, you'll never actually know. Now for me, football is the, is the worst sport for playoffs because we don't actually know who's better. We just know who's better on that day. You know, seven game playoffs, we actually can find out, we can get closer to who's better, right? We don't have the total numbers game, but you have to accept that football is a very flawed sport. The rule book is 64 pages. I think there's about eight rules about the T formation. You know, I don't <laughs> think anyone's coming out in the NFL rule book and running the T right now, but mm-hmm. we still have them. And so there's different things about football that you have to accept its flawed nature or dive deep into the playoff when you go to the four team. Now the problem is NCAA is a separate entity from the college football playoff. There are different ramifications when it comes to the money involved, but to me, I would expand the playoff to make, okay, now I have all these games matter. I have maybe half my games matter in conference. We can now make non-conference games much more exciting for better. You know, we can have the big teams play each other. So Sam, would you
4: be okay with like basically what Cade described? For maybe we use the computer to decide which ones are in the top sixteen, and then let them play it on the field. Let's let the computer see the top sixteen. You can yell at the computer, but the computer's not deciding the national champion. The computer's deciding who gets into the tournament.
0: Yeah, no, hundred percent. That's that's I, I, I like the computer aspect. It makes you want to now you have to leverage, you have to weigh your risks as an athletic director about what you would do. Um, the, the 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 fallacy that we have that every person is watching the games and they're, they're somehow smarter you know I worked with a lot of the coaches um and you know I, they're, I'm brilliant people but you know every coach looks at the game differently and every coach has bias right like it's it's every person has bias right the, the, to have a group of people watching the games it's just different you know look I, I, I to me I would have put Coastal Carolina and Cincinnati in the playoff this year because they sh- they played the games. Yeah. No. Oh
4: my brethren! Thank you. We finally have had an intelligent guest on this show. I've been saying this for weeks. And by the way, if you want to follow us on Twitter at WMoneyball, I've been tweeting this. Those are the two teams that have to be in. And as far as I'm concerned,
0: to me, to me, as someone whose livelihood was built on compliance from coaches and players, right? I needed my coaches and players to execute on the plan I put in front of them. Um, And they need to make me look good. There are times where, you know, the kickoff might not have been perfect if not these guys executing the right way. I know they could make me look good. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, it's about having some respect for the game. And then when the Big Ten decided not to play and then come back, and same with the Pac-12, same with the Mountain West, you know, reward the teams that played. Reward the teams that were COVID-free. Reward those teams. You know, Indiana got really hurt by what the Big Ten did to them.
1: Well, the Big Ten wins the Change Your Mind Award this year on multiple fronts. It's been pretty extraordinary. Listen, Sam, it's been a real pleasure to talk with you. Appreciate you taking the time. Wish you the best with the work that you're doing. We'd love to hear you come back and talk to us about chess one of these days.
0: Awesome. Sounds fun.
1: Sam Schwartzstein, formerly Director of Football Operations, Innovation and Strategy at the XFL, now working in chess, expert in tournament and game design. From South Lake Carroll, Texas, boy in high school this has been the whole wharton moneyball crew this quarter for this interview eric bradlow shane jensen and cave massey thank you guys for listening thank you from maddie d boss man Deion simpkins associate boss man between now and the next show there will be a holiday or two you guys enjoy that and enjoy your sports and come back and listen to us next week Business Radio Brief. We're talking to Mookie
4: Wilson, formerly Major League Baseball player. How much did you work on the defensive side of your
3: game? I'm going to tell you something that I've never told anyone. The one regret I have is that I didn't work on my hitting. I worked on my base running and my defense. When I was on base, I felt like I was on stage. And I took a lot of pride in my base running and my defense. I felt more important to the team defensively around the bases than I did hitting. Business Radio powered by the Wharton School.
2: American Top 40. We're heading for a brand new number one song. Casey Kasem counts the hits that shined in the 70s. It's time for this hour's long distance dedication. Our letter is postmarked Billings, Montana. Hear the actual 40 song countdown that aired during this week of the Super 70s. Keep your feet in the ground and keep reaching for the stars. American Top 40. Saturdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. With replays throughout the weekend on 70s on 7. Holding its line on a good line, and there it goes! The best golf coverage is on Sirius XM PGA Tour Radio. And it goes in. Oh my goodness! The world's greatest golfers. Tiger Woods! So Nicholson. Oh. The best analysis. Tiger's going to have to get a little chip back on his shoulder. Unforgettable moments.
0: Towards the left edge, and
2: it goes in! It's the most listened to golf in the world. Sirius XM PGA Tour Radio. Sirius 208 XM 93.
1: Wharton Moneyball. Delighted to welcome to the show longtime NBA player Shane Battier.
4: We live in the probabilities, and you have to take a probabilistic view of basketball because there's so much randomness. Makes and misses, for the most part, are random. The bounce of a ping pong ball, which determines whether you get a great draft pick or not, is random. You'd have to put yourself in a position to give yourself the best chance of success. And whether that happens or not,
3: it's luck. Wharton Moneyball, Wednesdays, 8 a.m.